Welcome to the Noble Ape Podcast, Ape Reality. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, experiments on animals, anthropomorphism in simulation. But before I begin with that, I want to ask you a question, and yes, I'm talking to you. Do you have a Noble Ape t-shirt in your wardrobe currently? And if not, why not? They're very easy to pick up. All you need to do is email me with a podcast topic, or alternatively, leave comments on a podcast-related download site that is listed in the front of the Ape Reality page, noblape.com slash reality. Email me, tom at noblape.com, with your pod topics, and I will, uh, I will be sure to do them. Plus, also send you a T-shirt, absolutely free of charge. I will pay for postage, and I will pay for the T-shirt. That's how interested I am in getting new podcast topics. So without further ado, I thought I would begin the discussion of anthropomorphism with uh, a little caveat to say that the difference between uh, the Noble Ape podcast and the Biota.org podcast is Biota.org is fundamentally a set of interviews, but it's to talk about the broader A-Life community. What I'm going to say here may offend people who have developed cellular automata artificial life developments, and certainly AI in a simulated environment is a distinctly different flavour. But my sense is having simulated entities that are in some way connected with real-world creatures, or at least things in, in people's experiences, probably gives a greater user interest more than anything. And my sense is that users know what apes are, they know what cats are, they have these kind of implicit components, which they have picked up through their own experiences, and it's easier to develop an A-life simulation that people will take away in some regard when it contains uh, actual world animals, or at least uh, names of actual world animals, attributed to little red dots, as is the case with Noble Ape. I thought I'd start by reading uh, a section of the Noble Ape manual, or the original manuals. These are available. In fact, I can substitute the green t-shirt for an original manual. If you want to email me with a podcast topic, I can get you a signed copy of an original manual. Uh, but they're currently available on Cafe Press at a very reasonable price, I think, of $15. Uh, you get a bulk discount, so if you can find, I think, 15 of your mates to, uh, or 14 of your mates to uh, get their own copies, you will uh, have a discounted version of the original manuals. I have some as well, so if you want to email me with a podcast topic or even a generally friendly email may score you one. So think about that. Think about emailing. Tom at Noblelake.com. Uh, I'm starting... <coughs> I'm doing this a little religiously. I'm starting on page 121. But just for fun, I want to play a thought experiment for you. This is a philosophical question which has haunted me since childhood and a question which nearly got me thrown out of a mathematics tutorial at university. The question is simple. Do rabbits fall in love? If you answer no, your argument can be based on rabbit population and the speed at which rabbits multiply. Surely this would only be possible if they were promiscuous. I have never read any study of rabbit sexual ethics, and although there exists a lot of text on primate sexuality and a lot of material on other creatures down the food chain, I have never read anything about rabbit sexual choices. The primary argument for people saying no is simple. They feel anything is purely lust. To play devil's advocate, I will argue that rabbits do fall in love. It's an interesting argument piece, actually, because many people will argue their side so passionately, and hence my near eviction from the maths tute. I argue that rabbits do fall in love because they have such short-term memories that there must be something more than simple lust going on in their heads. My test group of rabbits came through my brother's pet rabbits, starting off with a rabbit called Thumper. These test rabbits are Thumper, Fluffy, and Hazel from Hazel Ra of Watership Down. Thumper was the first rabbit my brother Felix owned. My other brother David owned a rabbit called Loco, but he quickly died of cancer. 
Dumper, however, was house-trained very quickly and developed a taste for mouthwash. Mouthwash had a high alcohol content and turned the rabbit totally poreless. Dumper was a miserable alcoholic, but very placid and always welcomed some bizarre psychological experiments. May I point out that Thumper was never harmed and only growled when he had a hangover. Felix derived an experiment to find out how long Thumper's memory lasted by putting him in the corner of a room and seeing how long it took him to turn around. With no alcohol in his system, the rabbit would quickly hop around and hop towards the closest person, but after a little mouthwash, Thumper would remain in the corner just staring at the wall. Felix argued that this was because his memory existed for such short bits of time, and he could not remember how he had gotten there. Flash! This is new, I'm staring at the wall. Flash! This is new, I'm staring at the wall. Flash! This is new, I'm staring at the wall. Flash! This is new, I'm staring at the wall. I always suspected Thumper sustained extensive brain damage from alcohol abuse. Thumper was always solitary apart from the occasional affair with neatly folded pyjamas, but he could never get the pyjamas drunk enough to do what he wanted. He was always too drunk himself, or he was busted by a concerned brother or mother. Thumper was a Canberra rabbit, but in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, my brothers kept two rabbits called Fluffy and Hazel Ra, who were very much lovers and had many letters to prove it. There were little things which made me think that these two had something special, primarily the fact that they would lie, pushing their snouts outside the wire towards one another as they slept. Of course, they lived in separate cages, although jailbreaks produced letters. My arguments of rabbits' love is not conclusive in any sense, but I must still wonder what brings rabbits together. Does one rabbit stare at the other and think, My, those are a nice set of teeth. What big ears, or perhaps what a beautiful white tail he has. And just when you think I've spent too many late nights studying my virtual apes, I will return to the topic, What makes one ape become attracted to another ape? And it continues from there. It's an interesting question whether or not animals fall in love. And my feeling is that these kind of thought experiments go throughout the original manuals. However, the rabbits in particular are well remembered by those that have gone through, even though there are a couple of glaring typographical errors which I've removed in my account. If you think my experimenting with animals stopped with purely rabbits, you're wrong. Well, I don't actually experiment with animals. I just observe animals as I see them in my kind of day-to-day element. My concern really is that on one side you have people that claim that you cannot anthropomorphize animal emotions, and fundamentally these people agree with the Judeo-Christian philosophy that animals exist as another to ourselves. And my sense is that isn't necessarily the case. Point in fact, about a year ago I found a cat. Uh, She was a kitten at the time, a tiny kitten. Uh, She was about a month old and she was about three weeks in weight, so she was already a week underweight. And Charlie and I, Charlie is our terrier schnauzer, were out walking one day in the summer sun, Las Vegas summer sun, and we found this tiny little pathetic thing who was relatively unable to move and very, very scared. And her brothers and sisters were playing at far distance. And they were uh, fundamentally alley cats. They were cats that had grown up in a wall system. There was a hole in the wall between two buildings, and the cats lived in between the, the two walls in a kind of undercover alcove area. And it was clear that there were a number of parents to uh, the litter, and the litter wasn't a sole litter. You find this in feral cats, that when they get multiple litters, there will be mother cats that kind of look after the multiple litters, and occasionally deal out rough justice to the cats that aren't their genetic uh, descendants. But, I mean, cats have a very strong sense of uh, at at least supporting others in, in this regard. So it was clear that Luna was very near death and had been left there by the uh, den mother who wasn't genetically related to her. 
And I took pity on this poor little creature and took her home. Now, she didn't develop a particularly close rapport with me, uh, a little standoffish, particularly as I'm the provider of food. But she does love Charlie, our schnauzer, and grew up with him. Uh, and if they are ever separated, although Charlie really doesn't care for the cat too much, but if they are ever separated, there is a, a, a noise which she makes, which I have only observed once because I normally take the dog out for a walk. My wife has commented on that it is really one of the most kind of heart-pulling noises there is. And whilst my wife argues in some regard that it's because she just wants to go out and explore, there is a kind of deeper emotion in the sound, which I, in the interests of science, recorded earlier today. You need to appreciate there's quite a bit of background noise because... The cat didn't meow near the recorder, unfortunately, even though the recorder was placed close to the door. So let me set this up for you. I'm taking Charlie out for a walk, um, a ten-minute walk, just a quick walk around because it gets hot during the day here, so I don't like to take him out for too long. And after about a minute after the door closes, uh, Luna begins the meowing, which goes on in a kind of minute period, and then there's another minute break, and then she starts again. But a very kind of heart-pulling noise, uh, and a sound that she only ever makes, apparently, uh, when Charlie goes on a walk. <coughs> My feeling is that there is emotion in the sound that's being produced. It isn't instinctive, it's not something which can be easily attributed uh, to survival or anything of this nature. In fact, Luna remains in exactly the same safe environment that she has always lived in. The sound, I think, is produced through some kind of connection that she has with Charlie, and if this is an animal love, even interspecial love, I'm not really clear what it is. Uh, I'm not really clear where one draws the line between these kind of noises and, and serious emotions. Certainly not deep-held intellectual emotions that, you know, humans can only possess. Ho, ho, ho. But it's certainly an emotion which I think is a good, if not identical, attribute to what we would call love. Anyway, I digress. This has been an interesting podcast topic. I'm going to start throwing the original manuals into the podcast just to give some grounding on what I was thinking about ten years ago versus what I'm thinking about now. The anthropomorphism question is very good because it appears that my ideas really haven't moved that far. Um, however, there are other topics in the manuals uh, which, ha which have changed. Uh, and my sense is it's a good experiment to record these podcasts with reference to the manuals. And if you have any topics that you would like to see in the podcast, if you would like a copy of the original manual, which you get purely by emailing a topic or alternatively leaving positive feedback and voting through the various podcast sites, you too can own an original manual or one of these beautiful Noble Ape t-shirts, which will be posted to you at no cost. So really, it's a good deal. Thank you very much for listening and look forward to you tuning into the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>